Sorry. I'm Danielle Yet, and you're listening to Critical Faith. This podcast is coming to you from the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics at the Institute for Christian Studies. ICS is a graduate school of philosophy here in Toronto, where I am a junior member. We gather members of our ICS community here to talk about all things faith, scholarship, and society, and the many ways those things interact. We hope Critical Faith gives you a bit of a glimpse into the everyday life of ICS. This semester, we're tackling some big questions. We're asking our guests to talk about the themes of evil, resistance, and judgment as they come up in the course of their work, their studies, and their lives. I'm Mark Standish, and I'm also a junior member at ICS. Last week, we shared the first part of an interview we did with our academic dean, Gideon Strauss, about his history with apartheid and post-apartheid politics and resistance, his involvement with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa, and his enduring hope for the future. Today, we're sharing the rest of the interview with you. Is there something that just irks you, that gnaws at you, that people just don't understand? For our new first segment, here's my thought. We're giving folks the chance to set the record straight on any issue of their choice, big or small, in five minutes or less. This week, it's my turn. My name is Elizabeth, and I'm the Registrar and Student Services Coordinator here at ICS. You might recognize my voice because it's been featured, without my knowledge, in the latest episodes of Critical Faith. The reason why I'm here today is because I'm known to have sassy opinions about anything and everything. What I'm about to say next, you might not like or agree with, but here's my thought. People in Toronto need to learn how to walk in public. When I first moved here from Sweden two years ago, I was actually impressed by the fact that people were never in a rush for anything. I would take the streetcar from Spadina Station quite often, and I noticed how people would calmly line up and then wait for the next streetcar, even though there was plenty of space to hop on the streetcar standing in front of them. Although I'm from the capital of Sweden, the population of Stockholm City is only about a third of Toronto's population. However, the subway doesn't run as frequently as it does here. So Stockholmers will literally throw themselves into closing doors. I can't tell you how many times I've watched people trying to squeeze themselves inside the train with half their bodies outside the train. Now, I'm not saying that this is an example of good behavior, but at least you can tell that these people have places to be. Back to Toronto. Carefree people during rush hour stress me out. Not only are people not in a rush to get on the subway, but they are in no rush to get off either. For some reason, 
the TTC is too quick to close their subway doors, if you ask me. I'm sorry, but even if I'm getting off in seven stops, I'm not going further inside the train because I need to focus on staying close to that door whether I'm getting off or on. When I'm finally off the train and I'm trying to get up the escalators, there will be at least one person that doesn't know the escalator etiquette. Stand right, walk left. See, I'm used to people not wanting to make conversation with strangers. People in Sweden follow unwritten social rules to avoid human contact. While in Toronto, people will practice mindful walking in the middle of the sidewalk at 9 a.m. With that all being said, I love this city. And believe it or not, my stress levels have reduced since I moved here. But when it comes to pedestrian traffic, I'm here to let you know, it's not me, it's you. You've mentioned to me that uh, the apartheid um, had a lot of psychological effects uh, on people who joined military service, men of your generation. Um, has the apartheid had uh, an effect on on you? And how um, how has that sort of worked out in uh, post-apartheid Gideon Strauss? Oh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Well, we can talk about that forever. So... So I think apartheid in itself against the bigger backdrop of racism and colonialism created a field of terror for all South Africans that resulted in the experience of trauma on a national level. And so that experience of trauma, which I think persisted throughout the whole era of colonization, and there's much more to be said about that, um, intensified as the struggle between the apartheid government and forces of liberation intensified in the 1980s, so that I think the experience of trauma um, expanded from the experience of only the directly oppressed to also become the experience of the oppressor in that setting. And specifically the experience of, um, specifically but not exclusively, the experience of men who are conscripted into military service to defend and uphold the apartheid order. Now, while I was able to refuse to serve in the military, the vast majority of my peers, so white males of my age, um, either did not want to or did not have the means to escape the experience of serving in the military in mm. South Africa. And I would say for all of them, that was an experience of trauma, sometimes an experience of suppressed trauma when they were able to live within the purview of a cultural myth in which they could see themselves as warriors or defenders uh, or soldiers of, you know, defending some good. There's much to be said about that. But if the myths were already fragile for them, which was the case for, I think, the majority of, of men, um, that was like a, it was a nihilistic experience. It was a meaningless experience in which they felt 
they fought to uphold an, an order in which they no longer really could believe. And then when that order was negotiated away, in as some people would say, you know, who, who did military service, it was it was negotiated out from under their feet. So then they found themselves in the early 90s in a situation where they had seen their comrades die and they themselves killed other people in service of something which they then discovered those who sent them to war already did not believe in by the time that they were sent to war, right? So that's an extremely traumatizing experience. You killed people in service of something that the people who made you do the killing no longer believed in. Um, and so the consequences, which is narrated by many people of my age in short stories or essays or novels or movies, uh, was one of profound uh, trauma and psychological disturbance, which in, in my peer group resulted in, among other things, a fairly large percentage of people committing suicide. Um, now, here I am. Um, I did not commit suicide. I did not kill anybody. Um, I did not see people die next to me. What I did do was work for the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa in 1996 and 1997 as an interpreter. And the majority of the testimony that I interpreted was the testimony of perpetrators who did serve the South African state either as police officers or soldiers. And so... I gave them words, or rather, they would speak in one language, usually Afrikaans. I would interpret that into English. And so, first-person testimony for two years of people telling about how they abducted people, how they tortured people, and how they murdered people. Mm -hmm. And so, while acknowledging that my own trauma is sort of tertiary trauma, you know, if the perpetrator's trauma is secondary and the victim's trauma is primary, then as an interpreter, my trauma is tertiary trauma. Um, while acknowledging that my own trauma is tertiary trauma, um, nonetheless, I experienced it as a profoundly traumatizing uh, set of events, the two years of interpreting. And so coming to terms with that has been a lifelong process. It's not, you know, as people, people ask me, so, so how did you get over that? I don't think either the primary or the secondary or the tertiary trauma in that setting is something you get over, but I think it's something that you either come to hold or fail to hold in a variety of ways that allow you to um, function. Hmm. Um, if you look at that uh, in, a, in a larger context and say like a nation um, where uh, a nation has to hold uh, trauma uh, such as apartheid, are there any ways in which you think uh, a nation could work to uh, hold themselves together after that, um, as opposed to ways in which that they might uh, crack and fall apart because yeah. of the trauma in the past. Yeah. Um, my short answer is I don't know. Mm -hmm. Slightly longer answer is time will tell. Yeah, but I would say um, that South Africa is an experiment in exactly that. Contemporary South Africa is an experiment in that. We are... 25 years into a post-apartheid regime that followed roughly 50 years of apartheid, that followed roughly 400 years of colonialism. 
four or five hundred years actually of colonialism. And so, um, so it remains to be seen. Um, I think South Africa made a valiant effort through the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which did work from roughly 96 to roughly 2000, so about a five-year period. Um, I think the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was as valiant an effort as I know of. Um, I think South Africa was lucky in having as the chair of the commission Archbishop Desmond Tutu, or then Archbishop Emeritus Desmond Tutu, fondly known as the Arch for Archbishop by South Africans, who theologized that experience as a Christian for the nation. While the legislation for the commission was not Christian legislation, um, uh, South Africa is a country that chose in its new constitution to think of itself as related to a god or god. It's a country that allowed the Archbishop to theologize the Commission in ways of dying to self for the sake of the other, of forgiveness, of remorse, even though the Commission did not require remorse from people who gave testimony. But the Archbishop helped the country to live through a story in the late 90s in which it, the country said to itself, we will face up to the truth of what happened specifically between 1960 and 1993, a period of um, overt armed struggle over apartheid. And by coming to terms with those truths, we will accomplish a degree of reconciliation. I think if you were to talk to a 20-year-old South African now, the vast majority of 20-year-old South Africans now would say that that effort had failed. I would disagree with him. I would say that that effort had succeeded um, as much as such an effort can succeed in the world as broken as it is. And that the fact that South Africa for 25 years has successfully um, built a democratic, a constitutional democratic political order in which we, as a nation, agreed to be governed. The vast majority of South Africans, by our actions, agreed to be governed by a specific constitution that allows us to co-determine our future democratically by means of partisan engagement in a proportional representative democracy. Um, and to dialogically engage one another around what future we want, the fact that we've achieved that, the fact that the vast majority of violence in South Africa now is criminal violence rather than political violence, and that the political violence that does occur is micro-political, and it's factional within parties. Um, it's not violence with the intention of overthrowing the, the constitutional order. I would say that that constitutes a success, actually, for that mm. process. And that now it's the, to be Weberian about it, Max Weber, you know, to, now it's the slow boring of hard boards. Um, it's a very slow process of enculturating a political order of, um, I, you know, as a, a sort of a, a, a Whig Caperian, a kind of a neo-progressive 
um, would say that the slow task of incrementally improving things is now the project. And that what that means is that the country won't get over the trauma. The trauma will perdure for generations and probably centuries, and it will take all kinds of efforts to deal with that in individual and communal lives and on the national level. Similar to the experience of slavery in the United States, you know, the United States will never get over slavery, uh, but it should and can address that national trauma, also politically. Was it hard to hold your faith uh, at the same time as uh, seeing the um, the destruction of, of people's lives and of themselves? Okay, so weirdly, no. Hmm. So I'm a dispositional or emotional Calvinist. Um, and I'm, what I mean by that is that I feel myself held by the grace of God. This is not an intellectual conviction. It's not a dogmatic statement. You know, so although, yeah, it's a dogmatic statement for me, but but my my Calvinism is is more dispositional than what it is doctrinal in the sense that I feel myself and I felt myself also through that whole time um, held by the grace of God. Um, my spirituality is very much a spirituality um, worked out within the gymnasium of the Psalms, and that's true for me since the early 90s. So not from my conversion, but from the early 90s, very consciously and intentionally, my spirituality is a spirituality that's shaped within that, you know, as Ambrose of Milan said, the gymnasium, the psalm, psalms. Um, during the two years that I worked with the commission, uh, the most difficult part of my spiritually was dealing with this trauma, dealing with these realities. And so my spirituality, I would say, shrunk down to a psalm like Psalm 137, which is a cry of the oppressed, which is not my cry, but in solidarity with the oppressed, a cry for God to punish the evildoers mm. and to punish them by bringing their, their line to an end, in a sense. So the psalm itself asks God to send somebody who will take the Babylonians, babies, and crash their skulls against the rocks, right? Which is a very intense and extreme statement of asking God to make this stop, you know, bring this culture to an end, bring this civilization to an end, bring this oppression to an end. Liberate us by killing our oppressors and their progeny. And for me, emotionally, that was the cry, you know, bring this system to an end, bring, bring the effects of this system to a decisive end by whatever means possible. So emotionally that was my 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 spirituality. By you know, I, I worked with the commission in ninety six and ninety seven. Um but it was not um a cry directed away from God. It was that was a dialogue with God. Hmm. Right. So um, um from a position of trusting that in the midst of all of this disaster and horror God somehow is at work. And that's appropriate for me to to tell God exactly how I feel about the situation in whatever extreme terms I needed to. And I mean, Bruce Coburn's, you know, a song, 
I wish I had a rocket launcher. If, if I had a rocket launcher, it would be very similar to Psalm 137. And I sang that song as I drove from hearings. You know, I played it in my little cassette tape deck in my car, along with early songs by U2 that had similar sentiments. Um, what happened for me, though, was uh, there was a specific event. So I was interpreting the testimony of a police officer and uh, it was an in-camera hearing, so it wasn't public and it's not recorded. And as I was interpreting this police officer's testimony, he was describing how he was torturing someone, but the details of the person that he was torturing allowed me to realize that he was talking about torturing one of my actual friends. Mm -hmm. So it was an event that had taken place 10 years earlier in the 1980s. So one of my black friends from that time. And so... Peculiarly, it turned out that, wow, I'm giving words to this guy as he's talking in great and horrifying detail. I tortured my friend. And I thought to myself, you know, if I had a handgun now, I, I would want to walk out of this interpreter's booth and I would want to shoot this guy dead because mm. of my love for my friend, right? Mm -hmm. Same hearing, the commissioners asked this police officer why he did what he did, and he gave a really powerful account arguing that he did what he did for love's sake. And so he said, you know, roughly in words that, that amounted to, I love my wife, I love my children, I love my neighbors, I love my folk, my people, my ethnic community, I love my race, I love my country. And because of these loves, I felt duty-bound as a police officer to defend the things that I love against the Ruegefaar, the red threat and the in the Swartgefaar, the black threat. And so I had to defend against black people and against communism the things that I loved. And as he gave that testimony, I realized that emotionally that was the same set of feelings that I was feeling in relation to my friend. You know, that for, for the sake of the love of my friend, I was perfectly happy to kill this person. And for the sake of the love of his friends, so to speak, he was perfectly happy to torture and murder people. Um, and for me, that uh, allowed a kind of a shift in my spirituality towards Psalm 51, you know, which is the psalm of, I did these terrible things, or I'm willing to do these terrible things, I'm willing to murder people for the sake of what I love. You know, so Psalm 51 is David, he fall, fell in love with the, you know, with the with the woman next door, and for the sake of that love, was happy to murder her husband or have him murdered. Um, and I think, you know, for in that moment or in that time, a sort of an Augustinian understanding of evil became my understanding of evil as misguided love. And so for me, that became both a way of understanding my my own evil and the structural evil in which I found myself as expressions of misguided loves or in Bob Gautzwart's terms, idolatries. In that context, therefore, rather than diminishing my relationship with, with Jesus or my understanding of my relationship with God, it intensified that relationship mm. as a kind of like a last harbor or an anchor um, and also, I mean, the anchor in Christian theology is a symbol of hope. Mm -hmm. So, um, as a source of hope also for uh, transformation and change, both for me personally and for the country I'm, I was in. So, and I'm not, you know, this is not a statement of virtue. Again, dispositionally Calvinist, it feels like an experience of rescue, mm -hmm. you know, that my 
continuing assurance of the love of God, both for the world and for me as an individual, is not something that I generate, it's something that I receive. Um, mm. And, and I'm, again, I'm saying that emotionally rather than doctrinally, even though I doctrinalize my emotions. Uh, Gideon, thanks for joining us. Your Thanks for sharing your experiences. They're very, very powerful. Um, yeah. So I hope you had as much fun as I had. And that brings us to our final segment, What's Your Pleasure? This is where we get to kick off our shoes and talk about the other things we do for fun. The movies and television shows we are watching, the sports and games we play, the food and drink we make and enjoy, the music we listen to, and so on. So Mark, tell me, what's your pleasure? My pleasure this week is um, a small little game that I found at my house in the old tenant's ottoman that they left behind um which is called gravitas which i didn't know existed and it's basically a box full of cards that ask people big philosophical questions um and it's fun to be a little cheeky with those questions so for example um one of the questions asks why do we need metaphysical consolation another one asks why is witchcraft so enduring another one asks why do short people try so hard <laughs> so anyways it's fun to sort of play around with them and uh, i brought them into the office the other day and uh nick gave some entertaining answers yeah i discovered he was quite good at this game <laughs> yeah which is no surprise really <laughs> no not really i feel like i would not be good at this game i would really love observing the game mm. i would enjoy it greatly i know that but i feel like i would not participate in the game well what do you mean you would just answer the questions in earnest i don't yeah probably or I mean, anything that i try to be funny about probably wouldn't end up being funny i'm just really bad at those kinds of games that uh, there's a certain humor in just like being a straight shooter you know just <laughs> like just answering the question straight up especially <laughs> if there's like heavy innuendo with the question yeah. but like complete disregarding the, the innuendo and answering it straight is like <laughs> it's there, there's a there's a certain humor in that. Maybe we'll try. That'll be our, our Christmas party go-to. Yep. Uh, my pleasure is at this point in time coming up, by the time this airs, it will be passed. So you'll have missed out already unless you're already in the know, which is too bad. But, that is too bad. Uh, it's Nuit Blanche, it's called, which is happening on the 5th, slash will have happened on the 5th. And... It is a all night street or all night citywide like art extravaganza, basically. Wow. Extravaganza in the fullest Your sense art is of the extravagant. Word. <laughs> there was actually two years ago in Nathan Phillips Square, there was a someone made a giant replica of the sun in the square and like simulated Oper sun. An operational replica? Yes, <laughs> to some degree, uh, and simulated like sun death happening, you know, like thousands and thousands of years from now or whatever. And it would like mm, cycle through. It might not be so far away. It's true. Were you there then? No. No, Keegan. Uh, Keegan, I met up with uh, one of our other former now 
junior members, Keegan, that night. Um, we're not the same person. We're not the same person. But for we some do reason, look quite different. Really, you do look quite different. It's the hair. <laughs> it's the hair. The hair is quite. Keegan <laughs> has quite long hair, and mine is pretty short. Pretty short. It could be shorter, but pretty short. <laughs> you try. Yeah. <laughs> uh, why does your short hair dry so hard? <laughs> uh, See, you'd be good at the game. No, I wouldn't. Anyway, uh, that was an example of some of the extravagant art that was happening in years past. So I'm hoping that such extravagant art will happen this year as well. That's it for our show this week. We hope you stay tuned for the rest of our episodes this semester. If you'd like to know more about the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics and the Institute for Christian Studies, you can visit us at icscanada.edu. If anything from this week's show piqued your interest, you can also email us at criticalfaith at icscanada.edu. You can also find us on Twitter. You can follow my co-host as at Beware the Yeti, and you can follow me as at Mark Standish. You can also follow ICS as at INSCHR. And from the heart of ICS, thank you all for listening. This has been Critical Faith. If you like what you heard, subscribe. If you like what you heard, subscribe to us on iTunes and consider giving us a review. It helps people find us and keeps us on their radar. Most importantly, tell your friends. <laughs> <laughs>